So y'all ready for this? If you got your Bibles, open to Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah 29, and then we're going to jump back to Matthew chapter 2 today uh, and go through a portion of a, a you're finally going to get a Christmas Christmassy message today, all right? So again, Jeremiah 29 and then Matthew chapter 2. Our study today starts with this question. Have you ever pursued something before with all your heart? Have you ever pursued something before uh, with all your heart? Some of you may think back to when you were a kid this time of year and there was a Christmas present that you wanted so badly and you wanted it with all your heart and you pursued it at every turn. Looking back for me, that was one called Teddy Ruxpin. Do you remember Teddy Ruxpin back in the day? Some of you are way too young for that. Teddy Ruxpin was this bear and its mouth moved and it talked and I'm telling you, I wanted it so badly. I wrote letters to Santa. I wrote letters to to my parents, to my grandparents, I mean, maybe to Congress, I don't even remember, but I was wanting that Teddy Ruxman so badly, uh, and then Santa ran out of the materials, I suppose, and so I did not get Teddy Ruxman, but I'm telling you, I pursued it with every ounce of who I was. Uh, there are going to be different times throughout life where there's different things that you pursue. As a kid, maybe it's a Christmas present. I remember pursuing that relationship that you wanted uh, for the first time. I remember when, uh, uh, when I realized that Autumn was someone that I wanted to date and that wanted to spend time with. It wasn't something I did creepily, but there's a way that you go, you know what? I don't have eyes for anybody else. I want to be with her. She's the one who I believe that God has set aside uh, to uh, to be my wife for us to be together. And uh, sure enough, again, it's something if you go into marriage and you're not pursuing that other person with all your heart, you're going to have problems later. Uh, It's got to be something where you say, I've only got eyes for you. I'm all in on this relationship. Some of you have gotten to uh, Capitol Hill that way, the way that you've worked here is because you specifically, nobody just gets to D.C. just by accident. It is something you had to pursue. It's something you had to work towards. It's something that required education, that required hard work, that required sacrifice, dedication, ambition. And I'm telling you, you go all in to be able to move here. And uh, for many of you who've grown up in this city, you know you got to go all in to stay here. It's just the way that it works. Again, uh, you understand pursuing something with all your heart. Some of you have lost some weight and gotten in shape. You're thin and trim. You're going into the holidays looking good. That Christmas sweater that normally stretches out a little bit is fitting oh so nice right now, you know, because you know you can't just go halfway in uh, and try to get in shape. For your heart and your lungs to be in good shape, uh, for you to lose weight, for you to fit back into that sweater again, you got to make sure you go all in with your health. And just for the record, it's the same way in our relationship with Almighty God whether he's calling out to you for the very first time for you to receive Christ and receive salvation and forgiveness of your sins or you've walked with God for a long time and he's calling you to go all in in your relationship as a disciple with him, for you to pursue him with your whole heart. Going in full pursuit of Almighty God is a very, very important thing. I want you to look with me, if you will, at Jeremiah chapter 29, and we're going to look at verses 11 through 13, uh, and it's going to be a very Christmassy uh, uh, tie-in that we do today. But look with me, if you will. Jeremiah 29, verse 11 might be one of the most famous scriptures that people pass to you uh, whenever you're going through a time of difficulty, and uh, verse 12 is, is beautiful in its own right, and verse 13 is beautiful in its own right. We're going to read them all together in the same context. 
context today. Look at what it says. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Many of you in this room have had a moment where you went through a time of uncertainty or a time of difficulty and someone sent you that verse. It's a powerful and a wonderful verse that's a reminder that God is on his throne, that God is in charge, and that he is the one who is crafting and taking care of the future. He has plans for you, and he is the one who holds the future. But now look at verse 12, what Jeremiah says on the heels of that. This is Jeremiah speaking on behalf of the Lord. He says, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. After realizing that God has a plan, the next general step in the process is to go to him in prayer, in fellowship and relationship, to figure out what his will for your life is. We commune with God, and then now look at verse 13. This is our pursuit verse. And you will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. There it is, that full, all-out pursuit that we talked about at the beginning of the message. It starts off with realizing that God's plans are good, that he has hope uh, in store for us in the future, that he is the one taking care of things. We seek him in prayer. We call out to him and then we pursue him with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength because he is the one who will be found by us when we pursue him. Now remember, God's will and the future that he holds, that he is crafting, is not up to us. But God chooses to partner with us in pursuit of the things of the kingdom. He can do it on his own, but he chooses to do it through us. He chooses to use us as partners in that process. If you're taking notes, write this down. God does not desire to be hidden from you. He desires for you to seek him. God does not desire to be hidden from you. He desires for you to seek him. When you think about it, you ever played hide-and-go-seek with a kid before? I mean a little kid. When people get older, they get way sneakier. And then hide-and-go-seek is a lot about the hiding and, again, about not being found. When you play hide-and-go-seek with a little kid, they are hiding for the moment when they are found. That's what they want more than anything else. That's the reason why when you play hide-and-go-seek with a five- or six-year-old, I'm telling you, they will hide like behind this microphone where you can clearly see them because they just want you to seek them. And then, I'm telling you, we play with our little three-year-old Zeke right now. Now, he will hide and will count, and he won't even move. He's just waiting there for us to get to 10, and then when we say, ready or not, here I come, he just goes, Arr! I mean, he can hardly contain it because he's so excited about the moment when he's going to be found. It's the same way with Almighty God. Not that he acts like a child, but that the Lord is waiting for us to find him. He's not hidden away in some place where we could never find him. If he wanted to do that, he's God, he could do that. He wants us to find him. But the process of seeking him is so rewarding. The process of seeking him, we have a journey and a story to tell in that process. It requires faith. It requires our participation. One of the best examples, I think, in Scripture of seeking and finding the Lord when they seek with their whole heart has to be the story of the wise men, the magi, when they follow the star when they seek the meaning of something that they could not have fully understood and they end up finding the savior of the world. 
If you're taking notes, flip over to, or excuse me, flip open to Matthew chapter two. We're gonna start in verse one. And today, we're gonna address our big million dollar question. How do the wise find Jesus? How do the wise find Jesus? This passage that we're gonna read, one of the things they teach you in seminary is when you attack a passage like this, you attack it from a threefold perspective. You look at it from their time, our time, and all time. Their time meaning you look specifically at what was taking place 2,000 years ago so that you can understand the context of this passage of scripture. Our time, you look at it from the perspective of why of all things did the Lord allow this story to be passed down for all of eternity? What is it for our time that is useful that the Lord would have this story passed down? What's the practical application? And then all time. Is there some timeless truth that we're supposed to take that is true not just then, not just now, but also will be true for eternity. This passage of the visit of the Magi is one of those passages that is so rich in their time, our time, and also in all time. How do the wise find Jesus? For some of you, this will be, how do you find Jesus for the very first time? How do you find, again, this God who's been pursuing a relationship with you? How do you find him for the very first time? And then for some of you who've walked with Jesus for some time as a disciple, how do you go all in with what God is calling you to do now? How do you continue that pursuit? Is something bigger than just forgiveness of sins, but where you truly would give him your life? And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you today that God is calling to follow a star. There is something super weird, supernatural, that the Lord is calling you to do that is not true for everyone, but it is true specifically for your faith journey. Not everyone was called to follow the star 2,000 years ago, but these magi, these wise men, they were. It was something very specific to them that God had called them to do. And my prayer today is that there might be some of you that God might be calling to figuratively follow a star as well. Now let's look at Matthew chapter two, and we'll jump into our story. It says this, it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Now stop right there for just a minute because we need to start this off. Many of you who uh, remember the nativity scene need to know the magi, the wise men, don't show up on the same night as the shepherds when Jesus is born on that Christmas night. There is a period of time that passes. That doesn't mean that you need to walk into your grandmother's house and go blasphemy, and I mean, wipe the table with the nativity scene. Or I've seen this before. Some will go home after hearing this story and they'll take the wise men and they'll place them in another room of the house, you know, just so they can show that they're in the east side of the house, you know, so that again, they're making their way over there. You don't have to do that. The beauty of the story of the wise men, the reason that we put them together is not because they were there the same night, but remember, the shepherds symbolize the nobodies, the anybodies, the you and me's of the group. They're the ones who the glory of God shines upon them with the heavenly host of angels. It's symbolic of Jesus coming, it says from the angels, unto you is born this day in a city of David. This is for you, not just for the wealthy and powerful, not just for those who, who would somehow feel like they deserve it. No, this is for every person in humanity. Jesus has come unto everyone. But on the opposite end of the spectrum, we've got these kings from the east. We've got these magi, these wise men from the east. And they come in as people of power and authority, as people who had the means to be able to travel cross country. And these individuals symbolize the other end of the spectrum, that Christ came for not just the nobodies, but even for the somebodies. They will show up in submission to Almighty God. Look at what happens next in the verse. 
After this, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, the Magi from the east, underline from the east, came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Underline that question because that's a really important question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star, underline his star, in the east, and we have come to worship him. Stop right there for just a minute. First of all, we find here that it says that they came from the east. According to most theologians, they believe that that could have meant three places, that it could have been from a place called Persia, and that referred to Persia as that time, a place called Arabia, or it could have been from a place referred to as the Orient. No matter where it is that they came from, it just says the East. We also know that they were of Gentile descent, and yet, check this out, they call him the King of the Jews, and they say, we are following his star. Now, this is what's crazy to me. Catch this for just a minute. They don't know, just looking at the star, that it belongs to the King of the Jews. That is something that would have had to, in some way, shape, or form, been supernaturally revealed to them in the midst of the process. They see the star. They see scientifically things coming together in this beautiful moment from a galactic perspective. But what you have in this moment, it's so powerful, is they say, we saw this star, and there is someone attached to it who is going to be the king of the Jews, and it's his star. The reason that this thing is happening in the heavens is directly connected to this specific event. If you're taking notes, write this down. How do the wise find Jesus? Number one, first and foremost, they take the supernatural very seriously. They take the supernatural very seriously. Things are going to happen in your life and in your circle that you cannot explain, that you could call it coincidence, but you know in your gut and in your mind the chances of this happening are so minute that something else is taking place and something else is going on. One commentator wrote it this way. This was beautiful. He said, God spoke to Joseph in a dream. He spoke to the shepherds and Mary through angels. And he spoke to the wise men through a star. The commentator goes on to say, our God will find a way to reach your heart in a way that you understand perfectly. For Joseph, the dream was what he needed to nudge him in the right direction, not just to stay with Mary, but the dream is what nudges him in the right direction to avoid the mass genocide that Herod interacts after the story and he takes the family to Egypt. For Mary, the visit from the angel is just enough supernatural nudge so that she would move forward in freedom, so that she would move forward in power, have the child, and also walk with her head held high. With the shepherds, the visit from the angel was just enough nudge for them to go and say, let's figure out what this thing is. God has lavished his glory upon us. This can't be for no reason. Let's go and meet this child. And for the Magi, their field is science. Their field is astrological study. Their field, again, is deep thought and deep thinking, reasonable pursuits. This can't just not mean anything. The Lord speaks to them through their mind. He grips them in their spirit. They take the supernatural very seriously. We saw his star and we have followed from the east because something special is happening. If you're taking notes, write this down. A wise person anticipates the value of a heavenly pursuit. A wise person anticipates the value of a heavenly pursuit. This happens to each and every believer at the very beginning of their spiritual journey, at least once. 
It happened to me back when I was five years old. The Lord began to start my spiritual pursuit of a star. It happened in a message that my father was preaching. And I'll never forget, dad gets up to preach. I'm five years old. It was at our church in Oak Street, Oak Street Baptist Church in Lubbock, or in, uh, in uh, Graham, Texas. And uh, while we're there, dad preaches a sermon that I'd heard him preach before, but it was on, again, the unpardonable sin and, and uh, what it took to get into heaven. Dad was not a fire and brimstone preacher, but he was not afraid uh, to let people know uh, those who do not have Christ as our Lord and Savior spend eternity separated from him in hell. And that particular Sunday, he got up, presented to the church, and then I'm telling you, a few of my friends start to walk down front. Now, I didn't want to go to hell, and so I remember running down the aisle and wanting to talk with the counselor as well. And so there was a wonderful woman at the church, godly, godly lady, and she took me over to the side, and she asked me the questions that you're supposed to ask a young child when they come forward for a decision like that. She says, young man, do you truly believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And I said, yes, ma'am, and I meant it with my heart and with my mind. She said, do you believe that he died on the cross for your sin? I said, yes, ma'am, and I meant it with my heart and with my mind. And then she said, the big question, do you believe he gloriously rose again on the third day? And with my mouth and my noggin, I said, yes. But in my mind and in my heart, my spirit, I went, I don't know. Can somebody really raise from the dead? Can I tell you why that's an important question? It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and without the resurrection, our teaching is useless and so is your faith. One translation says, without the resurrection, we are the worst of fools. Romans chapter 10, verse nine. The apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. The resurrection is paramount, Paul will later say, because if, say, because if Christ has not been raised, how in the world are we going to be? You must believe the resurrection in order to be saved. But I've just said it with my mouth but not believed it in my heart. And nobody knows that except for me and Almighty God in that moment. All of a sudden, the woman looks at me and she goes, we've been praying for this day since before you were born. And I'm like, oh no, what did I do? I remember my dad's the preacher. She takes me up on stage, stands me up next to my father. He looks down at me and he goes, son, we're so proud of you. We've waited for this day for so long. And I'm like, oh no. Again, I know. And God knows it's a truly personal decision, but I knew where I stood with Almighty God. And all of a sudden, before I know it, I'm getting baptized. Oh, dunk, no, right? I know the truth. But on the inside, I had not pursued the star. I had not gone after a relationship with God. Something happened after that. I'm the preacher's kid. I've claimed faith in Christ. It's tough to be a preacher's kid or a preacher's grandkid. Some of you in this room know. I end up giving my testimony to others about following Jesus. I end up leading a class on evangelism even before I was a Christian. And finally, I go to a youth camp. My dad is the speaker at the youth camp. And I was sitting right about there in the middle. There was a big middle center aisle and I'm sitting right about where you are in the black, in the black jacket. I'm sitting right about there and I'll never forget all of a sudden, my dad preached the same sermon he preached when I was five. Preachers re-preach stuff sometimes. I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden, something changed. It wasn't my father speaking to a crowd that day. It was the Spirit of God speaking to my mind and to my heart. 
He unfolded the gospel, and I could see it in my spirit. It was my time to follow the star. It was my time to step forward and realize this was not just a coincidence. This was a supernatural moment in my spirit. They asked if anyone would like to come forward and to be saved. Before the song was even over, I had gripped the back end of that chair in front of me, that pew in front of me so tight. But the second we had a moment, we stood to our feet, and I ran down the aisle, prayed with our friend Zane Newton, prayed with Zane. Zane led me to Christ. Zane's my cousin, by the way. I remember him saying as I walked up, Zane said, son, I thought you were already saved. I said, Zane, I want Jesus so bad. He told me that story the other day. He said, you looked at me and said, I want him so bad. I want Jesus so bad. Tears flowed down my cheeks. And all of a sudden, I was different. You see, a relationship with God isn't about the church that you go to, the family that you're born into. It's not even about what you say with your mouth, even though that's a piece of it. It's about that belief in your heart that Jesus is who he claimed to be, the son of God sent to save us raised from the dead so that we might have hope, the one who holds the keys to death and Hades so that he can unlock the cell and set us free for eternity. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Oh, excuse me. If you're taking notes, flip over real quick to save your spot in Matthew 2. Flip over to Matthew chapter 13 and we're gonna look at verses 44 through 46. We take the supernatural seriously in coming into relationship with God, but we also take the supernatural seriously when God has called us to something special, when he's called us to something new. Look at how Jesus describes it in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. Now stop right there for just a minute. You'd say, why didn't he just take the treasure? Because the treasure doesn't belong to him. He finds it on someone else's property. But it's so valuable. He sees it as so valuable. He's willing to take everything he owns that's symbolic of his life, his pursuit, and he says, I'm going all in. I've sold everything I have because that treasure in that field is so valuable, it's worth my life. That's what Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like. Look at how he follows it up with verse 45 and 46. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away, sold everything he had, and then he bought it. Stop right there for just a minute. If you asked me to identify a fine pearl, I probably couldn't do it. If there was a fake and a real one, I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I'm sure, you like bite it? I mean, I don't know, whatever it is that you do to identify a fine pearl. But this guy, because of his life experience, knows what a fine pearl looks like when he sees it and it is undervalued. So he sells everything he has to buy that pearl because a new life awaits him the day he buys it. The same thing with the man in the field. He looks and goes, right now it just looks like a barren field, but I know the treasure that's in that field is going to change my life forever so much so that he doesn't steal it if you see enough money on the side of the road you see a penny what do you usually do with a penny just pick it up there's something like it's not even worth my time say a dollar see a dollar on the ground you pick up the dollar and you go oh okay cool dollar Put it in my pocket, just go move on. Let's say you find $45,000 laying on the ground. 
there is not a single one of you in this room that's just going to be like, oh, $45,000, a year's pay. Excellent. I'll just put that in my pocket. Do, 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 right? You're going to sit there and you're going to go, is there a camera on me? Is somebody watching? Because clearly someone is missing this. Clearly this is important. What we have in this example is Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is someone who becomes enlightened to the fact that there is something supernatural going on around them and that the pursuits that we have, the things that we've been doing, pale in comparison to what God has instituted for our lives, so much so that we would sell everything and we would buy that field, that we would sell everything and we'd buy that little tiny pearl because it is worth it. It begs the question, how far are you willing to travel? For wisdom, for peace, for forgiveness, for salvation, for unconditional love, for purpose. How far are you willing to travel? These men, these magi, they were willing to travel to the ends of the known earth for truth to the ends of the known earth because something gripped them inside of them that this is what they were supposed to do. Now look at what happens next. Flip back over to Matthew 2 and let's look at verses three through eight. Matthew 2, verses three through eight. It says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Underline whatever words you have there for disturbed because that's a really good insight. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was going to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi in secretly and found out from them at the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and make careful search for the child as soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now stop right there for just a minute. Remember, these magi are referred to as wise and with good reason. They come in and they show up at the palace to meet with Herod. And can I tell you why I think they go to the palace? If it's been revealed to them that this child is the king of the Jews, it just makes sense that you would go to the Jewish palace to try and find directions to where this prince was being born. That's just the general thought. And they roll in, and just like many of you in this room work for the State Department or work around the State Department, when you are interacting and you are from Persia, Arabia, or the Orient, and you come into a Judah and a group that speaks Hebrew, they come into a situation, or Kone Greek, they come into a situation where they go, oh, cool, there's a language barrier that's not my heart language. Maybe one of the Magi speak Hebrew. Uh, maybe they don't. Maybe they have a translator that's there. But here's what they begin to notice. They come in, they share the reason that they're there, and then all of a sudden they see the facial expressions of Herod that he is disturbed. Not only that, they're sitting there, and one of the magi would have leaned over to the others and said, did you see they just called in the guy with the really big hat and the long beard? I think that's the high priest, and they don't look happy. They go, huh, that's really interesting. I'm seeing a whole bunch of people that are coming in here, and they don't look happy. They look a little bit frantic about this. And all of a sudden, the wisdom of these magi is to go, I don't know if we have friends in this room it looks like they might actually be against this calling that God has given us. 
If you're taking notes, write this down. How do the wise find Jesus? Number one, they take the supernatural very seriously. And number two, they avoid alliance with the wicked. They avoid alliance with the wicked. Notice that by the end of verse eight, the Magi are on their way and no one from Herod's temple, all those people that rushed in to meet them, not a single one of them is going with them on their journey. They found a way to get by and to not yoke themselves to people who would harm their mission. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Expect some in your path to be disturbed by your faith journey. Expect some in your path to be disturbed by your faith journey. Why? Because your journey of faith, your pure journey with Almighty God in pursuit of what Christ has called you to do shines a light on them and their wickedness is made visible. Silly story, but I hope it sticks with you. There's a great movie example of this. And it's called The Empire Strikes Back, all right? Y'all see Empire Strikes Back, which by the way, I'm just gonna put this to rest, is the greatest of all the Star Wars movies, okay? Empire Strikes Back, I'm a big Empire fan. In the movie Empire Strikes Back, I'm about to spoil it for you. You can pause it if you're watching the video, but let me shame you. You had like 50 years to watch it, okay? So here's the deal. In Empire Strikes Back, it all culminates with a wicked alliance that's about to form. You've got Darth Vader over there, the leader of who we think at the time, anyway is the leader of the galaxy right the evil leader of the galaxy and you've got Luke Skywalker Vader has just cut Luke's hand off and Luke has climbed onto this little thing this little weather vane thing and he's hanging on to the side of it there's a big massive ravine beneath him okay on this ship that they're on and he's holding on with one hand because his other hand is missing and all of a sudden Darth Vader pulls out the dirtiest trick in the book he leans out and says Luke join me form the wicked alliance right join me and we'll rule the galaxy as father and son. I am your father, right? Remember that scene, one of the most famous scenes in all movie history. In that moment, Luke all of a sudden holding onto the weather vane, missing hand goes, no! And you have this primal scream, right? No, I can't do it. You're too wicked. You're too evil. How dare you pull out that card? You're the worst dad ever, right? He's holding onto the weather vane. He says no, and then he says, waiter says something like, it is inevitable. It is your destiny. You have no choice but to form the wicked alliance. So what does Luke do? He jumps down the pit. He jumps down the ravine. And again, to spoil it for you, there's a little tiny man-sized hole that he falls into, one in a million shot, that just happens to slide him down like it's a slide at Six Flags and leads him onto a weather vane where he can get picked up and he can get taken care of. Now listen to me. The parable of Star Wars is to say this. There are gonna be times in your life where the Lord has called you to a heavenly pursuit and you feel like Luke Skywalker, one-armed on a weather vane, with the Wicked Alliance going, it's your destiny. It's you have no choice but to sin. You have no choice but to join forces with me. It's your destiny. And there's going to be a point when you go, you know what? I'll take my chances with the Lord and step off the edge and trust that the Lord's going to have to take care of you. Wicked Alliances are the way that the enemy tries to bully us into not pursuing the star any longer and to not going after what God's called us to do any longer. And this city is master's level at bullying. 
I mean, I'm PhD level at bullying. They wrote the book on bullying in this city. There are going to be times, not every day. Luke doesn't step off the ledge every day. But that particular day, he did what was right and trusted the Lord to take care of him. Be careful who you're yoked to. It's the reason any farmer knows the reason that word yoked is used, even in our modern culture, is two oxen that are pulling at the same speed can plow beautiful, amazing, crop-producing fields. But when one oxen is weak, it's just a little bit off. And it doesn't seem like much, but over the course of the entire field, it gives you a much, much smaller crop from what you could eventually reap. Avoid alliance with the wicked and again, expect some in your path to be disturbed by that faith journey that you're on. It begs the question, are you ready for this? Is it time you got back on the road? Is it time you got back on the road? Are there some people in your life that you have been entertaining that now what they've ended up is a distraction from your journey? They're wanting to come along with you, but they bring a whole lot of stipulations for your relationship with God, and it's time that you just move on. Not hatefully. And at Christmas, don't be like, listen, Pastor Zach told a story about Luke Skywalker and I'm cutting you off. Click, right? What I'm talking about is the difference between someone who is an acquaintance to you and someone who you are yoked to, someone who you are tied to. Avoid those wicked alliances. The wise men could say, the magi could say, yeah, we know Herod. We talked to him. Yeah, we know Herod. We experienced him. But they didn't allow him to have power over their spiritual journey. Let's keep moving. Now look at Matthew chapter two. Let's look at verses nine through 11. Here's what it says next. It says, after they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen in the east went ahead of them, look at this, until it stopped over the place where the child was. Now stop right there for just a minute. The supernatural occurrence of the star is now culminating in the defying of the laws of physics where the Lord has shown them what's supposed to happen because they've been watching it so intently, they now get to see the supernatural hand of God at work all around them. It stops right over this house. Now look at what it says in verse 10. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. Now I want you to notice all the verbs here in verse 11. These are all verbs drenched in humility. Look at what it says. It says, on coming into the house, underline coming into the house, they saw the child with its mother Mary. Underline they saw the child and they bowed down. Underline they bowed down and they worshiped him. Underline they worshiped him and then they opened. Underline they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. Stop there for just a minute. All of a sudden in this moment, they've been on this supernatural journey. They've avoided those alliances with the wicked. And then one day, the supernatural moment happens where the star stops. The laws of physics halt for a brief moment and they go, whoa, look at this. It's right over this house. Now, we're not picturing a big mansion. We're not even picturing a room the size of the one that we're in. This is like an adobe hovel that they're in. It would have been a situation because Joseph was a carpenter. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't rich. The door frame would have been so low that you had to dip your head down to get into it. If the kings or the magi looked anything like we do in the Christmas plays, right, they would have had to take off their hats, step inside this one or two room hovel, and then it says they get on their knees on the dirt floor, and they bow down, and they worship him. 
The shepherds have the glory of God lavished upon them, the nobodies, the you and me's of the ancient world. Unto you is born a savior. And then on the opposite side, we have the magi who come in and say, any glory I may have in this world pales in comparison to this little baby that I have the privilege of kneeling before. That's the Christmas story. God loved the world so much that he sent his son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but would inherit eternal life. The poorest of the poor, the nobodies of the world, or the who's who, the richest of the rich, the wealthy enough to travel in the ancient world, even they bow before the Christ child. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? How do the wise find Jesus? Number one, they take the supernatural seriously. Number two, they avoid alliance with the wicked. And number three, they know their place in God's plan. They know their place in God's plan. Many of you in this room are the main character in your life. Not just your life, but you're the main character in your family's life as well. Can I tell you a secret? In God's story, we are secondary characters. We are supporting actors and actresses. And we are so lucky to be in that spot. In this city, in this world that we live in right now, we can sometimes begin to see ourselves as more than we actually are. This time of year is a reminder the kings of old bowed before this little baby in a hovel in the most humble of circumstances. Can you imagine this? I'm getting chills just talking about it. Can you imagine you've traveled all over the known world to make it to that hovel and then all of a sudden the last steps are you bowing your head, taking off your hat and kneeling in the dirt before this king, this pauper king that's in front of them. The humility of those magi is the reason they are called wise. They knew their place. For some of you in this room today, I want to encourage you, if you have fallen into this attitude that everything is about you, Christmas is the perfect time to remember it is not. If you take your notes, write this down. Are you ready? A heavenly pursuit is drenched from start to finish in glorious humility. A heavenly pursuit is drenched from start to finish in glorious humility. I got to learn that this week. One last story and we'll call it a day today. I got to learn that this week and really over the last two months. So my daughter Lulu, apple of my eye, 10 years old. There's nothing sweeter than a 10-year-old girl, by the way. She is just so sweet, so kind, so wonderful. So she and I have been best friends a long time, pretty much since she was born. And I'm the one, if she ever gets to choose, I'm the one that she typically chooses for whatever it is that she wants to do, including her swim lessons. And so two months ago, um, she started swim lessons and uh, is pretty good at it too. She's doing great. So I'll never forget, we go to the swim lessons and it's just me and her, but because of all the new social distancing guidelines, it's very, very rigid. It needs to be. It's very, very rigid uh, at this swim lesson. And so I'll never forget, we walk in and take her to her little swim lane 
I sit down, and just the way that it works, it's this big, massive pool, but she's swimming like four feet away from where my chair is, which was so cool, because I'm just right there, and there's a, there's a glass window in front of us, but again, just four feet on the other side of that glass window. She's there swimming, and she's partnered up with a little boy, and the little boy is really struggling with the swim lessons. Have you ever been to swim lessons before? There's tears, there's people who cry, and this little boy, he's sitting there crying, and then sitting across the way is his mom. They're three kiddos. They're three other kiddos, and they're watching this little boy swim, but he's really struggling. Well, my pastor's heart, I look at the little boy, and I looked at the mom, and I said, can you tell me what his name is? I said, I'd like to cheer for him. She goes, oh, that'd be great. His name is such and such. And I'm like, okay. So I'm like, go such and such, go such and such. And again, because it's on the other side, they can kind of hear us, but we're giving him the thumbs up and he's swimming. And I'm telling you, I'm cheering just as hard for Lulu. But again, my pastor's hard. I was like, I'm going to cheer this little boy on. And afterwards, the family comes up and they were like, this was great. You must be a pastor. And I was like, yes, yes, I'm a pastor, a pastor Waterfront Church, 100 K Street Southeast, 9, 10, 15, 1130. If you want to come up and hang out with us, you can just doing the doing our thing. Tell them about the church. It's who we are, right? And then they have this rule. They have this rule that at the end, when you pick up the kids from swimming, you have to walk in the door that's on the complete opposite side of the room, about 30, 40 feet away. You have to walk up the full length of the pool, walk the length of the pool on this side, and then come out, pick up your child, and then come out where I am four feet away from the door on that side. So everybody goes to do that, and I just look at Lulu, and I'm like, just walk out the door. It's four feet, right? Just walk out the door. And Lulu just goes, no. And I was like, come on, it's four feet right over here. And she just goes, fine. Walks out the door. I introduce her to that other family. She and the little boy are just like, okay, great. And then we walk outside, and I notice that she's just furious in the car. Well, the worst thing possible happens. We get home, and my wife comes up, and she goes, uh, your daughter just asked me a question. I said, what's that? I said, we had this great experience. Met a great family. She goes, uh, your daughter just asked if I would take her to swim next week. <laughs> she never asked Autumn to do anything. It's always me. Best pals, BFFs, right? Father-daughter. I went to Lulu and I said, you don't want me to take you to swim? And she goes, no. And I said, why not? And she tears up and she goes, because you don't follow the rules. I said, well, it was just the four feet. She goes, the parents are supposed to walk around. She goes, and you cheered for that little boy. And then I'm telling you, 10 years old, some of you preachers will understand. She goes, sometimes... I just want you to be my dad. So, this week, she comes up and says, I got a Christmas present for you. She had two things. First, she wrote me a letter, five-paragraph letter, that she says she's going to give to me on Christmas Eve. And she said, second, I'd like for you to come to swim practice again. And so yesterday... I got to go to swim practice with my daughter. And can I tell you what I did? I wore the biggest mask I could find so I wouldn't be tempted to talk to anyone. I wore a big old mask that went all the way around my face so I wouldn't talk to anybody. And then I went and I stood at the door and I waited 
And again, it was right over there on that side. But I walked, I took the turns around. I asked her, I said, how would you like for me to cheer for you? She said, really, just a thumbs up when I come around would be great. You don't have to say anything. Just do a big thumbs up and I'll know that you're for me. And I said, no problem. And you know what I did? I sat with my hands crossed the entire time. I held my thumbs up to let her know that she did a good job. I followed the rules all the way around. And after it was done, she said, daddy, do you mind taking me next week? Humility is understanding that I was to be a secondary character in her story and that she was not to always be the secondary character in mine. You see, with Almighty God, we try to make him a secondary character in our story when he is the author of our story. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. There's somebody in this room who I feel like may have needed to hear that today. The Lord shamed me, and he did it through one of the people that I love more than anyone else in the world. I want to encourage you. Trust the Lord and follow the example of the wise men. They realized in their journey, you know what's crazy about them, by the way, and we'll close with this. They were wealthy, they were powerful, and yet we don't even know their names or how many of them there were. We say three because it was three gifts. We don't know their names. We don't know their exploits, what they did that made them wise individuals. All we know is what they did in their heavenly pursuit, and that is worth retelling for eternity. It begs the final question, are you too good to go in the house? Are you too good to go in the house? Would you travel to the ends of the earth? Because it's on your terms. But when the Spirit says, kneel in the dirt, go under the doorframe, are you willing to go those last four feet because he is worth it. I said last thing, but let's read the last verse, just for fun. Verse 12. It says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. After meeting Jesus, they lived differently. They didn't go back to Herod. They didn't take the shortcut on the way home. After meeting Jesus, they lived differently. Is it time you followed a star today? Is it time you followed a star their time, our time, all time. Is it time you followed a star today? Maybe Jesus for the first time. Maybe to live in discipleship for the first time, to go all in. Or maybe something super weird that the Lord has supernaturally asked you to do that only you know you're supposed to do. Let's bow our heads for prayer. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around but just me. We call this our time of reflection there's nothing mystical or magical about this time. Just a chance for us to stop and to process how we're different because of the songs we've sung, the sermon we've heard, and specifically the scripture that we've read. With nobody looking around but just me, is there anyone here today that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? The Lord is calling me to follow a star. Again, maybe that's to believe in Jesus for the very first time, like we talked about a moment ago. We must confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord but also believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Maybe it's to believe in Jesus for the first time. Maybe it's to live that life of discipleship, to go all in. Or maybe like we talked about, maybe there is some specific star that the Lord is calling you to follow. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, I just want to pray for you in your pursuit. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. So many of you, y'all can put your hands down. Thank you. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But I want to encourage you, take just a moment 
and say, Lord, give me courage to take the first step. Lord, give me courage to take the first step. Second, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I feel a bit like Luke Skywalker on that weather vane. I feel a bit like Luke Skywalker, one-armed, holding on, where the wicked are saying, join me, it's inevitable. If that's you, I just want to pray for you that God would give you courage to do the right thing and to trust him even when that wicked alliance says your destruction is inevitable. With nobody looking but just me, if that's you, I just want to pray for you. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It takes guts. I see you. I see you. Thank you. Y'all can put your hands down. If that was you, I'm going to pray for you. But I just want to encourage you. Pray this simple prayer. God, give me courage to do the right thing. God, give me courage to do the right thing and to not be yoked to people who will slow me down. And then last but not least, maybe there are some of you here that would say, Zach, would you pray for me? I need to know my place in God's plan. I need to be okay with being a secondary character, not just in my spiritual pursuit, but also in the people's lives that I love the most. They are not just secondary characters in my story. Lord, we are all secondary characters in your holy kingdom, in your narrative, with nobody looking around but just me. If that's you, and you'd say, Zach, pray for me. Pray that my life would be drenched in humility. If that's you, if you would just lift your hand where you are right now. It's powerful. It's powerful. Y'all can put your hands down. In this city, that is a noble pursuit. I'm going to pray for you, but I want to encourage you. Just pray this simple prayer. God, let me mirror the humility of the wise men. God, let me mirror the humility of the magi. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll stand. Father, thank you for this day and for your blessings, and thank you for the chance that we've had to study your word. Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that we would be known as people who follow stars. That, Lord, when you move supernaturally, that just like the Magi, we would be willing to go to great lengths. That just like the person who sold all that they had to buy that field with the treasure in it, that just like the person that found the pearl of great price and sold everything they had so that they could change their life. Lord, I pray that we would have that same spirit. God, thank you for the examples that we've read today. Lord, I pray for those who need to take the supernatural seriously, that you would give them courage to take that first step. Lord, I pray for those that need to cut off that alliance with the wicked, that you would provide for them supernaturally a way out so that they could do the right thing. And Lord, for those who need to be drenched in humility, I pray that they would choose that and not have it forced upon them. Help them to choose the humble path. And then, Lord, that you might, just like with the wise, that you would use those moments to define them, that when people look at them, they would see you in great humility as the picture frame around the masterpiece. We love you, Lord. Speak in power in these final moments. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.